Okay, so thank you, Kevin. So what we're looking, so this is joint work anyway that Cormac and I have been doing with Neil Cummins, who's a former undergraduate of ours, who's currently at CUNY in New York. He's just about to move to LSE. So what we want to talk about today is London in the plague era. And so to put this in broader context, as you all know, England had an industrial revolution at the end of the 18th century. Even before then, it's an unusual sort of place as European economies go. And mo most people attribute this unusual economy to London. But the big fact about London is it's very large, even in early periods. So by 1650, which is sort of getting towards the end of our period here, it already has a population of 400,000. So it's nearly as big as Paris in a country that's only about a quarter of the size of France. And so having this urban monster has a big effect on the English economy from the end of the 16th century. I mean, you have to feed these people, so you have an intensification of agriculture, the beginnings of what some people call the agricultural revolution. You need fuel, obviously, to keep these people warm, for cooking and so on. This led to the development of the coal industry up around Newcastle. Then you had to ship the coal down. That led to a big coastal shipping industry. It's a very big mercantile centre. You have wages are high. And then you've got this big merchant oligarchy who fund the civil war against King Charles I. And then a generation after our period, 1689, they go, they decide the current king is bad for the credit rating. They boot him out and put in a more amenable guy in terms of death, then, we've got this gigantic city. And as you all know, in pre-modern cities were dangerous places. People died of lots of things. And this kept British population, English population down, kept wages up. So that's the background. So in terms of population history, English population is pretty well known. Back 70 years ago, guys, Cambridge called Lydia Schofield, went around to all these different parishes in England and went through their parish registers, births, marriages, and deaths. And on the basis of this, were able to construct English population back to 1540. But they stayed away from London. I assumed initially that this was because all of the parish registers in London had got burnt in the Great Fire in 1666. However, it turns out that most registers of parishes exist back to the 16th century for London. And I think this says something very profound about the English psyche, that as the flames approached in 1666, their first thought was, oh, we have to save the parish registers. Like, you can imagine something like this happening here, like you thought, save the drink, and by the time you <laughs> rewarded yourself about everything would have been burned. So anyway, but these things exist in overwhelming numbers. And this has been a problem in the past. There have simply been too many of these registers for people to actually deal with. There have been a few studies where people have looked at small subsets of these. The best known, by far the best of these, by a guy called Slack, who looked at a sample of about 13 or so of these registers. But we are going to look at more or less the entire set of extant records. The reason we're able to do this is thanks
to Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They have a policy of that if you convert, all your ancestors are converted as well. All your family pets living and dead as well, probably. But what this means is they go around and they collect parish registers. And obviously this has made them unpopular in some of the more sort of straw dogs parts of England as they can sort of run out of town by the local yokels sort of wielding pitchforks and torches. But they have all this stuff online. So what we did, to be precise, what Neil did was he went in and he accessed this data. And when we told Brian Nolan about this, that we had you know, acquired all this data, without the sort of knowledge or permission of its owners, he nearly fainted. But we have since been in touch with the Mormons, or rather they were in touch, threatening Neil, and he <laughs> made various deals with them, and they're now happy for us to access any of the stuff we want. So this is all legitimate at this stage. Probably, <laughs> I don't have to bother, bother him on Julie. Okay, so this is what we're gonna do, okay. So what we've got is we have got currently about 850,000 deaths, 450,000 baptisms from this period, from 1560. So our records go back to about 1540. They get a bit thin before 1560. So I'm just going to focus on this period here. So in this period, we've got 130 parishes in London. And we have got records of about 111 of these here. Okay. So... What we want to do is we want to talk about the passion of mortality here. And the big thing is going to be plague. Okay? That you all know there was the great plague of 1665, and that's known because Daniel Defoe, who was the sort of early journalist, wrote a very strange and almost entirely fictitious book about this plague. But what we're going to see is there are lots of early plagues just as large. So what we're going to be able to do is we've got these deaths on a daily resolution. We're going to work on a weekly resolution. So we're going to be able to see how big these plagues were, how they spread geographically, and so on. Okay, so first of all, here's a map of London. Say it's, this screen is very small here. But the main thing to bear in mind is London at this time is tiny. Okay, here's the Tower, here's London Bridge here, here's the Palace of Westminster. Okay, so, and then you've got the wall here sort of going around. So basically, what you've got in this period is London is pretty much the city. Okay, what's that, the square mile? and then the surrounding areas here, okay? And say a bit of it south of the river, like this. As we're going to see, this is rather an idealized map of London, okay? That it's all compact and nice houses and streets. At this time, London would have been very much like a third world city. You have a sort of rich central park surrounded by various favelas. These are sort of pretty much left off this map here, but we'll see that as we go along. Okay, so this map here then shows us the London parishes. So this is going to be the centre of our analysis here. So again, you can see here, whoops, hang on. So here's the river here, here's London Bridge, say here's the tower. And we've got the wall going around here. So we've got then three basic subdivisions of parishes in London. What we've got is inside the wall here, and say what's now a square mile, you have got 97 parishes. You've got loads and loads of very small parishes. Okay? So some of these would have only about 50 households in them. Okay? Typically wealthy households. So, like I said, I don't imagine the 
guys running these churches has ever died of overwork. It's like, when the city burns down, in most of this area here burns down in 1666, they don't rebuild a lot of these parishes, they amalgamate them. But they continue to keep records for these virtual parishes. So we've got then this area here of little parishes. Outside the wall, then, you've got the extramural parishes. Okay, you've got 16 parishes outside the wall and some are kind of all around the walls here. These are typically much larger and much poorer. Okay, so these parishes are typically about the size of a large town at the time. And then beyond these, then, we've got what we're calling, this is basically the area controlled by the Lord Mayor of London. Okay, so this is the wards of the city. They elect aldermen. It's well organized. And in particular, you've got a centralised system of charity. So you have transfers in rich parishes and poor parishes. Beyond this, you've got what's called the out-parishes. Okay? And these things are basically the Wild West. Okay? There is no control of these at all. So these things are not brought under the control of London until the 1850s. And so you have no poor law, nothing going on. So, what you can see here then is I've coloured these according to when these things start. And so these ones here, the dark blue ones, start before 1561. And so you see we've got a lot of these here, then you've got sort of darker blue for later things here, and then the light blue ones are the ones we're missing. At this stage, we're missing very few important parishes. Okay? The ones we are missing is the big one here, Giles Cripplegate. Okay? Where, which has still records. This is Holborn here, it's missing. And they're the two real big ones. And then there are sort of two small ones here and here. That, but otherwise, we have, mo at this stage, we have most of the extant burial and baptismal records for London in this period here. Okay, so what we did then was we went and we scraped these things from the web. So the question is are our records accurate? There are two possible sources of inaccuracy. The Mormons could have taken down the records carelessly. Okay? That, there's not much chance of that. They say it's a well-funded operation. They employ professional genealogists to do it. The other possibility is that we could have screwed up in downloading stuff. Okay? So we could have missed stuff. So what we can do is we can compare our estimates for years with years where we have records for London. Now what you have is in London, from the end of the 16th century, they kept weekly records of deaths, what called the London Bills of Mortality. And these were designed to track plagues. And most of these London Bills before 1660 were lost. And the reason they got lost is that it was complete set from 1604 to 1660. But it was led to a guy called Grant who is viewed as the father of demography. He was the first person to study population systematically. And Grant never gave them back, presumably they got burnt in the fire. But we have, for a few plague years, we have annual totals, which were collected in an 18th century book. And so what you can see here, so this is 1625, a big plague. 1636 is a sort of very much a B-list plague. And then we have 1660, which is a non-plague year. And then 1665, which is the famous plague. What you can see here is that our dots match up pretty well. So these are square root axes here. Most of the ones we're missing, say, which are the red dots, which I've imputed, are very small. Okay, so we've got most of the big ones. 
What we can see is in the bigger plays like 1625 and particularly 1665, and our records here are quite a good way below the London Bills estimates. And this seems that the whole process of burial registration broke down in large plagues in large parishes. They simply stopped writing people's names down in the book, even though they seem to have kept a tally themselves of the numbers who died. But it seems like our numbers are pretty accurate. Okay. So, the first thing we want to do then is you want to talk about the spatial distribution of wealth in London at the time. What were the rich areas? What were the poor areas? The conventional view of London, say, would say slack bushes, is that you've got a pretty unchanging social structure. That you've got a rich central area surrounded by successively poorer areas as you go towards the walls and the river. And this is certainly what we see. This lower map here is 1638. Okay, so this is basically the valuation of people's houses. What we can see here is you've got this area of high-value houses in the centre here. This is, this is a cheap side. This was sort of Mayfair of its period. And that as you move towards the walls, towards the river, these places are getting poorer. However, what we've got here is we've got new data for a tax that was levied in 1582. Okay, we've got the tax records of everybody who paid tax in London in that period by parish. And what you can see in this map here is it's pretty geographically random, okay? That you have some quite wealthy parishes at or outside the walls, and you've got fairly poor parishes in Cheapside here. So there's a much more diffuse distribution of rich guys in the 16th century than there is in the 17th century. And we're going to see this mirrored in the distribution of plague mortality, okay? So, what we've got is, we have got estimates for a variety of parishes, but we're missing then other parishes, so we need to impute these missing values. And this caused me endless amounts of grief, that I started off using spatial interpolation. So the idea is that say, we know deaths in all parishes from about 1660 onwards, you've got annual data for these. And so what we can do is we could say, look at a parish, and say, say in 1620, and say deaths in, in this parish we've got, say, 30% of what they were in 1660. And so we can do this, if we are missing a parish, if we know the surrounding value, we can impute the missing value. So I used a variety of techniques for this. I used pin plates, blinds, like we try and fit a rubber sheet through it. I tried regression trees, where we break up the date data into homogeneous groups based on, say, geography and date. All of these worked quite well for the 17th century. Okay, we've got, say, Grant's totals here, the blue line here. But where we got, went back into the 16th century, we have data on how many people died in bad plagues. Okay? And we also have data from a very strange book from the 19th century for 1578 to 82. What I found was my imputations were horrible for this period. I was way overestimating the number of deaths. I finally got something to work by using a singular value decomposition. This is sort of familiar to most of you through Amazon recommendations. Okay, now you get books and Amazon recommends things you would like. And so, best known, but better known than Amazon, to Americans, is Netflix. Okay, that if you get movies from Netflix, they will recommend other movies to you. And 
Netflix a few years ago had a competition where they gave you their database of all, most of their users and most movies. You've got tens of thousands of films and millions of users, their recommendations. And you had to be able to predict then the missing ones that they had withheld. And so you've got this matrix, most of which is empty. And you then have to figure out, okay, how do you impute these missing values? And the way you go about it is by singular value decomposition, which is a dimensional reduction. So instead of having, say, 20,000 films, you break these films down into their principal components, which are genres of films, like no action films, comedies, whatever. Typically about 15 of these work. Similarly, for all the users, you break them down into their preferences, how they score, how much they rate action films, comedies, and so on. So you can reduce this giant matrix then down into a few dimensions. And this is the technique I used here. I used a recent SVD setup here, and it works very well. So what we see then is, say, this is the total for London, this is the total for within and without the walls, and this is just for the area within the walls here. So what we can see here is we have these pretty big plates, okay? We've got big spikes, okay? We've got, I stopped before 1665, it's going to be up here, but we've got a big plate in 1625, big plate in 1603, second division plate in 1593, and another big plate in 1563. Okay, so we've reconstructed the mortality outside oh, go on here. So the question then is how big were these plagues? We don't know the population of London in this period. So we don't have a denominator for death rates. Instead what we did is we looked at the death rate in each plague year relative to the average mortality over the previous five years. So this gives us some idea of how big this plague is relative to the ordinary passion of mortality. So if we look here, what you see here is that these plagues are ranging from, the big ones here, are ranging from five to six and a half times usual mortality. To put this in context, in this period, mortality, the annual mortality rate will be about three and a half percent. Okay, maybe four percent in some places. So you're talking then of more, having six times your normal mortality rate is going to put you up towards a 20% mortality rate. Okay, so you're going to have a fifth of your population die in the space of about 12 or 16 weeks. Okay, so these are completely horrifying. So what we see then is we see basically we've got 1563, 1603, 1625, and 1665 all of similar magnitude. What is interesting, though, is that if we look at how the pattern of mortality changes in these parishes, what we see is in 1563, the rich parts of the city, the central city parishes, say, I said the half of parishes which are richest in the 1630s, their mortality, they actually have the worst mortality of any area of London. Okay, in this period, we see the population is quite mixed. Most people are still within the walls. By the time of 1665, so it's running at eight times normal mortality. By 1665, you've only got three times normal mortality. So what's happening is, say, among poor city parishes, it's 
mortality stage much, much the same. Extramural parishes, mortality is getting worse through time. So what's happening is these rich guys are dying at the same rate as poor guys as time passes. Part of the reason could be they've segregated themselves spatially. Okay, they are now living in areas surrounded by other rich guys away from the poor. Another possible reason is these guys ran away. So we know from, say, Pepys' diary, you know, he sends his family to Greenwich to get away from the plague. We can track this by looking at births. We can see how much did births fall in plague years in the different areas. And what you find is that compared to 1625 with 1603, there is, there are similar sort of plagues. You find there is a big fall in births in the rich areas, suggesting more of these guys are running away. But, but sorry? Oh, baptism. All the subs baptism to the funerals. These are all church records. As, you, as your record showed, I mean, you have a much lower percentage of baptisms compared to deaths, so it's, it's a subset of people. Yeah, absolutely. For 16, Because you, you have like 100 years, and I thought you had like 800 births and like 400,000 baptisms. So you're missing a lot of births. Uh, no, we'll see. We're, uh, we're, we're actually, uh, it's, we'll see from most. back to die? Yeah, say, what we'll see is. Yeah. Now, what we see is that baptisms are actually a good record of births until the 1640s. And then there's a period of between the Civil War and the like, Oliver Cromwell, the Commonwealth. People don't like the brand of religion in these Anglican churches and they don't get the kids baptized. Okay. But, so there seems to be some of it, but for the most part, it seems that it's just these areas have got healthier. Okay. By segregating yourself from the poor, you are insulating yourself from the effects of plague. Okay, and so what these pictures here show, these are the relative mortalities of the different areas in plague. So basically the light colours are you get off pretty lightly, dark colours are you're getting really whacked. Okay, and so what we can see here all the time, the parishes which are getting hit worst are these two northern parishes here. Okay, this is Giles Cripplegate, here. This is the, at the time the largest and poorest parish in London, and this one beside it is Shoreditch. And so, but what we see here is looking at 1563, if you look within the city walls, which again say it's hard because they're small here, you can see there are dark patches in here. Okay, so you've got these, some of these city parishes are getting hit really hard. If we go out to 1665 here, what you find here is say these guys here are getting massacred. Okay, but you've got some of these are 10 times normal mortality. I would say you've got about 30 to 40 percent of the population in these parishes dying. Like this is as bad as the Black Death. But if you go these rich parishes here around Cheapside, here, these are light purple. Okay, that we can see there's a very different geographical pattern. These guys are getting off very, very lightly compared with everyone else. So it again is mirroring the distribution of wealth that in the 16th century here, people are pretty much randomly moved around, they're dying at random. By the mid-17th century, these rich guys have successfully insulated themselves from, from plague. Okay, so the question then is, what is plague? We've talked, we said, okay, there are all these plague outbreaks. What precisely is plague? And this has been very, very controversial. That what you have is you have had two major outbreaks of plague 
medieval times. Okay? You've got the Black Death in the 14th century, and it recurs, and this is the same sort of thing going on here. This is the tail end of it. And these plagues then die out in the early 18th century. And then in the late 19th century, you have new outbreaks of plague. And this is, I thought, this is when plague is formally identified by year seven and so on. But these 20th century, these late 19th century plagues, in, say, mostly in India and China, are very different than these early plagues here. That not many people die in them. So typically, in, say, in China, India, you have maybe 2% of the population die rather than, say, that fifth or a third in these earlier plagues. Also, modern plagues, say, in the late 19th century, spread very slowly. Even with steamships, it would take a few years to spread around the place. So this led people to say, okay, then, these early plagues, like Black Death and so on, were not <coughs> modern plagues. They were probably something like the Ebola. They were some sort of hemorrhagic fever, just they spread so fast, they killed so many people. This was a popular view until two or three years ago, when people started to dig up plague pits in London and around Europe. And by analyzing the dental pulp, I think the pulp people keep, they found traces of plague DNA in their teeth. So it seems pretty clear then that these people were dying of plague, but it seemed much more lethal. However, when they compared the DNA of these medieval plagues, or say 17th century plagues, with modern plagues, the DNA is almost identical. Seems to be very little change in plagues. So that is a big, big puzzle. We'll, we'll come back to it in a second. The second fact about plague is identifying plague. The assumption in the economic history literature, and most people do, is that you've no problem identifying plague. That no people get buboes, they die suddenly and horribly. However, when I started to look at this stuff, I started reading 19th century literature on plague. And in this, people point out that it's very hard to distinguish plague from typhus. Okay, so typhus is a fever which is spread by body mice. So it's a big killer in the Irish family, it's in most families. But these guys will live in your clothes, and then they're, if the droppings get into you, you develop a very nasty but, according to these 19th century guys, it's very, very difficult to tell typhus from plague. That with typhus, you, also, you can also develop pupils, like you, your limb glands and your armpits and your groin can swell. You can also die suddenly and horribly. In addition, then, the main distinguishing feature of typhus is spots. Okay, it's often called purple fever or spotted fever. And again, these petechial spots in typhus these are the ring of roses in plague, like no ring of ring of roses. You get spot, you get intradermal bleeding in plague. The one way you can't help them apart is typhus doesn't, doesn't kill children. If you have typhus as a kid, you typically show no symptoms. It may recur later in life, so it can sort of flare up like shingles. It's called Brill disease. But it doesn't kill children. Plague kills equally at all ages. But if you find isolated cases, an isolated body in the street, it's not clear what they die from very often, typhus or plague. And this, is, this is going to be important in what follows. Okay, so this guy, Murkison here, they, he wrote the sort of 
Well, the other thing then is that typhus and plague seem to occur together. And again, this is something that isn't mentioned in modern discussions of plague. Like plague is called when you're bitten by a rat flea. And they've got nothing to do then with human body lice. But again, looking at these Victorian writers on typhus and plague, all of these guys point out that plague epidemics are often preceded by bad outbreaks of typhus and are often accompanied by them. This guy, Murchison, say he wrote the sort of standard Victorian textbook on typhus. And it's one of the few people who have gotten full-blown typhus twice in his lifetime, died of heart failure as a result. But he says, okay, they've been preceded or accompanied by great prevalence of typhus. So this doesn't seem to make any sense. I say human lice and rat fleas don't have very much to do with each other. But what is very interesting is there are a team of French guys in Marseille, led by this guy, Troncourt. And what these guys have done is they've gone back and looked at earlier French writings on plague from the 1920s, 1940s, from North Africa. And as you know, that France had this empire in North Africa, which had various outbreaks of plague. Like obviously, most of you here look like a sort of troubled adolescent who would have read Camus at some stage. So you're all probably familiar with his novel about the plague in Iran in the 1940s. With these plagues, they fell into two different categories. There were plagues where no two or three percent of the population would die, just like in India and China. But there were also plagues where 30 or 40 percent of the population in a town would die. And what these French doctors felt, the difference between these had to do with human body lice. That in small outbreaks of plague, they were transmitted by rat fleas, the usual way we think. But in the really severe outbreaks, it seemed they reckoned that it was human lice were doing the transmission and also human fleas. So these guys, Dronker and his friends, have shown that human lice can transmit plague like from between no rabbits back and forth. What they also show, which is interesting, is that rat fleas are actually a very poor vector of plague. You need to be bitten a lot by rat fleas to get plague. In addition, plague is not native in rats. That the common view of plague is that it lives in rodent populations between outbreaks. So like say in Central Asia, the Western United States, you have plague in various rodents. But what these guys point out is that between plague outbreaks in these critters, there seems to be no sign of plague in the population. Plague, when rat gets plague, it dies, just as humans do. That plague does not seem to be native in rats. Looking at the DNA of plague, these guys reckon it's a telluric organism. It's adapted to living in soil and occasionally gets into animals. So what seems to be going on is there seems to be something in the dynamics of human body lice causing these typhus outbreaks and plague outbreaks as well. But it doesn't seem very straightforward. Okay, but this is where we are with plague. Okay, so what we can do is we can go and look then at outbreaks of plague. How many people died in these plague outbreaks? In the London Bills, for the years we have them, they identify plague mortality. Okay, they tell you the number of people who died each year of plague. And this has long been known to be severe underestimates. Okay, that basically, if you had plague, you, know, you were locked in your house with your family and left to, left to die. So for 
some reason, people were reluctant to have this. So they were trying not to be classified as having plague. The approach we take instead is from epidemiology, from epidemiological surveillance. So this is what you have in most countries, most civilized countries, I don't think that's in Ireland, is you have medical sentinels. You have various doctors around the country who keep track of things like influenza and hepatitis C. And so each week then, they put in the number of cases they have. And so you can track them if there's a jump in the number of cases. You can figure out, okay, there's an epidemic starting in the place. The usual methodology is you compare a week with the same week and the five surrounding weeks. So you've got an 11-week period over the previous three years. And so you look at the number then relative to this average over the past three years. And if you're saying the 1% tail of the Poisson distribution, you, you flag that as something strange happening. So that's what we do for London. So what we've got here is these are the percentage of people here dying in mortality crises. <coughs> okay? So where you go above your threshold here, this is the number. So we've got eight, so these are the big plagues here. What we can see is ignoring the big guys, what we see then is that we've all these secondary plagues here through the 16th and 17th century. Okay? We can see they're getting milder through time, okay? that you have these very, very large secondary plagues in the 1570s and 80s here. So you've got outbreaks in the 1640s and so on. This is the last big plague. And then after that, you see that this, these crisis mortality here becomes pretty small. Okay? So we've got this big change in the pattern of mortality. So what we can do then is we can track the weekly diffusion of plague. So what we've got here is the color is how much you are, are above the threshold. Okay, so if you're yellow, things are normal. Okay, and then so you start to change color. Okay, the dark brown and things are really on fire. But so what we have is 1563, 1603, 1625. Okay, all of these things here tend to kick off around the middle of the year, around June. And what we can see here is that you've got the same colors in all these maps here. Okay? So you've got all the time here, say, this is Giles Cripplegate, this is Shoreditch. Okay? So this very poor northern area outside the walls, this is where it's originating in China. Okay? And we can see then that over the next few weeks, say, this would be four weeks later here, say, gaps of four weeks, it spreads gradually around the walls, okay, into Southwark, say, on the south bank here, and then spreads finally into the city. Okay, so we have this consistent pattern going on. This is very revealing, that there has been a big debate on where did this plague come from. And the consensus in the literature has been that plague was an exotic import, that occasionally ships would bring it in. If that were the case, we would expect to see plague occurring, first of all, in the eastern end of London, okay, where the port was. Okay? Instead, what we're seeing is originating consistently in the north of the city. So it's obviously native in the place. And so we've got exactly the same thing for 1665. For 1665, because of Grant, we have got these weekly records of the spread of plague. And this is what Defoe used to sort of make up his sort of fictional account of this. In this period here, it doesn't start in Giles Cripplegate, it starts in Giles in the Fields, okay, this again is a sort of slum area here, 
that's growing very rapidly at the time. And I've made up a little animation. I'll see if I can get this to work, okay? Inevitably, it won't. But, um, say, the screen is a bit small relative to the size of my image. But we'll see if we can get it to work. Um, say, I just need to hit play. I'll slow it down a bit, and then I'll hit play and see what happens. Um, Okay, so these things here, we can see Giles here is lit up, and now we're getting these, I'll move these down a bit more here. Um, okay, so what you can see going on, as I say, it's spreading all the way around into the city here. These dark ones, I've set the threshold pretty low here, only four times normal mortality, okay? But we can see this pattern here of spread from the north around, and then into the city. Okay, that's enough of that. Okay, just stop that and go back to this. Um, okay, so we can <clears throat> go and we can plot then the weekly spread of plague in these things here. The next thing we want to look at is the seasonality again. That plague is very much an autumn disease, okay, a late summer disease. So what I've done here to start with is I've said, I've looked at some interplague periods, okay? So it's from 1613 to 23, and from 1650 to 1663. So these are periods between major plague outbreaks. And what I've done here is I've drawn the red line here is the city within the walls, the green line is the parishes outside the walls, and then, sorry, the blue line parishes outside the wall, and the green line are the further out, the out parishes, okay? And so what we can see here is even in these periods without plague here, we're getting these autumn peaks. Okay, so there's still plague going on, and we say we have crisis mortality. So that's, that's nothing very interesting or new here. What is interesting is the next stuff. That what we've got is the last plague occurred in 1665. And so the conventional view is that plague died out in London in 1665. Say the last recorded case is in 68. 1678. Okay? If that's the case, we should see a change in the seasonal pattern of mortality. That if you look at rural England in this period, you've got a V-shaped pattern of mortality. Okay? That the mortality will peak around February or March. Okay? And it will reach a minimum then in the summer, and then it will rise again. So this is, even in this period, in the 17th century England, that's the pattern we find. It's the modern pattern of seasonality of mortality. So if we, if plague disappeared after 1665, we should have that V-shaped pattern. Instead, what we see here, looking at 1670 to 89 here, we find again there is this autumn peak, okay, in all parts of London, okay. From 1690 to 1709, again we've got this autumn peak, it's getting smaller, okay, and if we go up to, say, 1710, 1729, it's disappeared in the city, okay, the ritual part here. It's still there in the out parishes, outside the walls, in the poorer areas of London, okay? And then only after, say, 1730, 1749, we see it's gone to the standard pattern of a minimum in the summer. So what this is suggesting is, and no more than suggesting, is we don't see 
any overcome evidence for the disappearance of plate after 1665. What we're observing here, in these periods here, this autumn spikes in mortality, is similar to what we observed in earlier interplate periods. So there is a possibility that plague went on undiagnosed, either accidentally or deliberately, for until the 1720s, when it disappears all around the world for reasons that are very, very mysterious. Okay? But we would not immediately say plague disappeared after 1665, looking at these. Okay. So to finish up then, I want to look briefly at baptisms. Okay? So again, we've got our estimates here, and then Grant's estimates. And what we see here, baptism rise till 1640, and then say people stop baptizing their kids for the rest of our period. <coughs> what we can look then is different areas of London. And this gives us an idea of the growth of these areas. Okay, that basically baptisms are more or less proportional to population. So we can see here, the city starts out biggest. It's overtaken by the extra mural parishes around 1600. You've got then the out parishes here growing, so slowly, and Westminster here, which doesn't really sort of kick off until the early 17th century. Okay, what is interesting about this, and say Grant noted this back in the 17th century, is that these dips here are plague. Okay, and what we can see here is that baptisms recover very rapidly after plague, even though you have had 20% of your population die within two years the numbers of baptisms has gone back to its original level. So, in other words, you've had guys flooding in from the country to fill the shoes, possibly literally, of the guys who died. Okay, so you've got this very resilient demographic regime. And you see this also in wages. Say, if you look, say, after the Black Death in Europe, there's a massive rise in people's wages. You don't observe any plague effect in London wages in this period. People die and they're replaced almost immediately wages are just the same as they were. So we can look then at the natural increase, the ratio of births to deaths in London and in different parts of London. And again, the consensus view has been that London was a demographic sink, that births were way outnumbered by deaths. But what we can see looking at this picture is we've got quite a different pattern. Okay? Now what we've got here, this is the sort of total here which isn't very interesting. What is interesting are the rich parishes here. Okay, so this line here, this red line, this is where you're breaking even. Okay, this is your break even, births equal deaths. What we see is during the 16th century here, most of the time there's a deficit. Okay, but during the 17th century, say outside this is 1625 plague here, outside this, most of the time there is a surplus of births over deaths in these richer areas. As we go down, if we look at the poorer parts of the city and outside the walls and then the out parishes, we see there are bigger and bigger deficits. Okay? And through time then, the part of that one that grows most are the out parishes. Like all the other areas are just crammed full of people. So the growth is in the out parishes, which have this much, much worse demographic regime. But we can see for rich guys in this period during the 17th century here, they're doing pretty well that they're actually, actually managing to more than replace themselves outside plagues. Okay, the last thing we do then is we look at the strength of Malthusian mechanisms. Okay? 
Okay, so the idea is that as wages fall, we should observe a rise in mortality. And so Cormac and I have worked on this for England outside London in this period. And what we find is that after the 16th century, there isn't this positive check, that the living standards don't affect mortality. And this seems to be because of the English poor law, that you had this system, each parish had to provide support for its inhabitants. Basically provided essentially old age pensions and then looking after widows or deserted women with lots of children. But it seems to have pretty much stopped the positive check. What we can do here is we can look at the different areas of London. Okay? And what we find, so this is all of London in our period. This is the wage in the year and the number of deaths. And what we see here is we've got a few outliers. These are smaller plagues. Okay, I've left out the big plagues, which are sort of way, way up here at the top here. Okay, but we've got smaller plagues here. But we've got this downward relationship. For the city inside the walls, it's pretty much flat. Okay, this is not statistically significant. This line here. What we've got is the parishes outside the walls a stronger relationship, and then for the more distant, poorer parishes, it's stronger still that you have an elasticity of 0.7 from wages to debts. And this is on a similar magnitude to what Cormac and I found for medieval peasants. Okay, so these guys are living very much on the edge. So within the city here, you've got, say, people are wealthier, you've also got well-organized poor relief. Okay? Outside here in the out parishes, there's no poor relief at all. You've got big influx of people coming in from the countryside after bad harvests and dying. Okay, so that's, that's basically it. So, uh